come up, have a chat with me. I'd love to get to know you. Uh, I'm one of these weird people who does not love Christmas. Um, I actually came in and Daniel was like playing Christmas music this morning as they were getting ready. I was like, wait, what? We're doing Christmas music still? Like, what is going on right now? Um, but that's, you know, that's my problem. You know, uh, many of you, this is a hard season for you. Uh, it, it really is. For a lot of people, this is a really hard season. Uh, it's, it's bitter uh, for many of us. And in God's kindness, uh, he's allowed me to be married to a woman who loves Christmas and loves me and helps me to uh, exude more Christmas joy uh, each year, more than I did the year before. And, and another kindness is that God put me in an office next to Daniel Cresswell. And uh, so, you know, I know that it's August when I start hearing Christmas music. Um, and, and he just, he won't, he won't let go. He just bears down more and more. It's like Christmas gets longer and longer every year. He like makes up like a church holiday that includes more Christmas. Uh, so, and it's a kindness to me, but, but honestly, uh, this season, it is a kindness to those of us who, uh, really struggle with it. And so I'm thankful for each of you, uh, your prayers to me as I prepared to preach this week. It, it, it was, uh, and has been very sweet, but, but also difficult, um, kind of bittersweet, so I uh, thank you for praying for me. Uh, everybody's together again this week. I love when we do that. Uh, if you need something for your kiddos to do, you can look out in the lobby, and there's these things here. They're kind of age-graded, and they have some little activities that you can do there, so if you uh, kiddos need something to do, feel free. You can always get up, go out there, grab it, and once you get bored hearing me talk, you can do that. Uh, it's okay. Um, we are going to continue in our study through the book of Luke this week, and uh, this week's sermon is kind of like a part two of last week's sermon. Uh, it's like, you know, the lesser known yet still really interesting uh, sequel to uh, last week's sermon like Gladiator 2. You didn't know there's a Gladiator 2, did you? There's really not. There isn't. I made that up. Uh, but they go together. They walk together. They are an extension of one another. And I'm, I'm really pleased to get to uh, share it with you this morning. So let me pray against, uh, again once more for myself, for help, for you, and for I as we open the word together. Uh, Father, we do pray that your word would be made clear to us by your spirit who inspired this word. Uh, and in concert with Mark, wrote it down that we might uh, have an orderly account of all the things that happened. And so uh, may this sure word that you have given to us uh, be an encouragement to our souls uh, and, and, and enlighten us, reveal to us who you are. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Look with me at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. You'll see this. And at the end of eight days, he, Jesus, was circumcised. He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So, in the same way that we saw John named by his parents back in chapter 1, now we see that Jesus is named by his parents, just as the angel prescribed. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh's salvation or the salvation of the Lord. And so the name Jesus would be a fairly common name. He would not have much trouble finding a lunchbox uh, with his name printed on it. But though his name is common, we will continue to see throughout this passage that he is anything but a common child. For the people of Israel, a name would be given, it was a really important thing that happened, their name would be given along with the sign of circumcision. Both would be symbolic of what the parents hoped for that child. And the sign of circumcision hoped forward to what Deuteronomy 30 prescribes. So if you look at Deuteronomy 30, it says this. Number six, 
And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. For Israel, the physical act of circumcision imagined something greater. It imagined how God would ultimately cut away that which stood between an intimate relationship between God and humanity. It was intended to remind them that they needed a change at the core of who they are, not simply outward adjustments to one's appearance. The people of Israel needed God to reach inside of them and cut away all that hindered their sensitivity to him. They needed help loving him, and that's what circumcision would image and represent. And though the word salvation, that literally Jesus' name, can refer to a lot of different things one can be saved from, it's mostly about what one needs to be saved to, or, or better said, who needs to be saved to, the one they need to be saved to, the person that they need to know and be connected to. All of humanity needs God's surgical hand to be saved. That work has to be done to all. And this is exactly what Jesus was sent to do, to save his people from their own sinful hearts and lives. What was just a hope and a symbol now has a face and a name. His name is salvation. Look in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifices according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. After Mary's time of purification was complete, probably about 30 days or so, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they make the five-mile journey up to Jerusalem, probably from Bethlehem. And, and, and Luke here in chapter 2 is very intentional to tell us exactly what they did. And they did everything exactly as God had prescribed to Israel in the book of Leviticus. And if we look over there in the book of Leviticus, we will see a few pretty important things. So if you look at Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, it says this. And when, and when the days of her purification, this is God's instruction to women about uh, uh, when they would have children. And when the days of her purification or purifying are complete, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old or a burnt, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. If we compare what Luke says with Leviticus, uh, we learn a few things. First, we learn that Mary and Joseph were very careful to do all that God had required. They're going step by step doing exactly what God had asked them to do. We also see that Mary and Joseph were probably poor, seeing that Luke only mentions the doves and the pigeons. Third, we see that the purpose of the visit was for a sacrifice of 
atonement. The priest would meet them at the entrance of the temple or of the tent, and he would take the birds, he would slaughter them, and then burn them as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. And that was to cover over the sinfulness of the one who offered it. All of this can be kind of quite confusing. If, if this is kind of a new topic for you, or you're kind of first delving into what the Bible says, kind of Old Testament, New Testament, how those things work together, it can be a little confusing. So, so let me simplify some things here. Before Jesus came into the world, having a relationship with God was pretty complex. People's sin made it impossible for them to have a relationship with God. There was a barrier between them. So God made a temporary way for people to get closer to him. They would make sacrifices and offerings to God at the temple where he chose to live. Priests would help people make their sacrifices in the way that God required. The sacrifices, they were often animals like lambs and birds and bulls and goats. And they had to be killed as a way to temporarily cover over the sins of people, the sins they had committed. It would cover over them. And the death of these animals was a reminder that sin against God always results in death. So people, they had to come to the temple year after year and month after month and day after day to make these offerings and sacrifices to cover over their sins. But it didn't take away their sins. It only covered them. So kids, it's like if your room was super messy and you just threw a blanket over top of the mess, right? It doesn't take it away. My kids never do this. It doesn't take it away. It just covers it. It's, it's still there. You haven't dealt with it yet. But God, he promised that he would send someone to make full payment, to really deal with the problem of sin, to make an offering that would really take away people's sins. So it used to be, that money was backed by things like silver or gold, right? So if you had $50, there was a representative amount of that silver or gold put away somewhere that backed this up. And this is really similar to what we see in the Old Testament. The sacrifices from the Old Testament, those sacrifices made at the temple, the blood, the blood of the bulls and the goats and all the heifers and birds and such, is like paper money, right? It was, it was just paper. It was representative of something. But it was fairly worthless. Unless it pointed to something greater and represented something greater. A work that someone else would do that would actually make atonement. So the Sacrifices of the Old Testament represent and find their value and worth in something greater, a greater and real atonement that would come later. In the same way that paper money has no real value other than what it represents, the silver or the gold, the offerings at the temple had no value other than how they represented what God would do when he sent the Savior who would make true offering and payment for sin true atonement. Look at Luke 2, verses 25 to 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, so they bring him in. So when they show up to the temple, there's a man there, there named Simeon. And Simeon is a really fascinating name in the context of this passage. It, it means something like this, to hear and obey, or to hear and be heard. And, and we know a few things about him. We know he loves God and is concerned about obeying him. God's spirit is upon him and God talks to him. God gave him a pretty unbelievable promise and, God, and he believed God. And lastly, he's waiting on God to keep that promise. So what is the promise that God gave Simeon? Luke calls it this really interesting phrase, the consolation of Israel. And most of us have a limited interaction with this word. Uh, we mostly hear it used like a consolation prize. Like if you're on a game show, you lose, you get a consolation prize. That's kind of how we hear that word. It's given to those who lose a contest but need to be comforted by their status as a loser, right? It's not something great. It's kind of like something less than. But here, it's something altogether different. And so I want, to, I want you to think something more like comfort food meets rescue from danger meets promises fulfilled meets I told you so. So if you kind of take all those ideas and put them together, we get something like that. Or think about a displaced refugee who is hated by their new neighbors. They're taunted by them and, and, and they threaten their lives. These refugees, they, they long for home and familiar food and, and safety that can only be offered by a brother or, or a father. They long to be vindicated. They want their neighbors to know that they are not fools for waiting and, and hoping for a better life. They want consolation. Consolation is the, the rewarding comfort of receiving what you wait and hope for. That's what this word points to. Simeon heard the Holy Spirit speak to him, and he believed him. And the message that he gave to him was very simple. The Christ, or the Messiah, would come before Simeon died. That's the promise. People had been waiting for a rescuer for thousands of years. And God's promise to Simeon was this. You will see him with your own two eyes. That's the promise. Imagine how hard it was for him to believe that. Imagine. He tells him, you will see the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah for yourself. And he believed him. Even though people had waited for thousands of years, he believed him. I imagine uh, in this story, Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they're, they're making their way up to Jerusalem. And at the same time, Simeon is going about his daily routine. He gets up, washes his face, has whatever the first century equivalent to coffee is, puts his clothes on, he goes to the temple to pray. And by God's divine control, the one who was given this promise, Simeon, he locks eyes with the one who was promised. That God in his divine care and divine control made this moment happen. Simeon sees the Christ child. He lays hold of him and he begins to speak 
about him. So he heard from God, and now he will be heard in the temple. Remember, his name means to hear and be heard. He heard from God, and now the people will hear from him. And I imagine what Simeon says, it's not done in a whisper, right? It's not a whisper voice. It's in a a library voice that he's going to say these things in. I imagine it to be like a loud proclamation about this child, loud enough for everyone to hear. And this is what he says in verses 28 to 32. He took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So Simeon, he stays true to his name. He tells what he heard from God for all to hear. And this is what he says. God, you kept your promise to me. I have laid my eyes on your salvation. And he is for all types of people everywhere. Israel and everyone else. So it's fascinating. He says that Jesus is a light of revelation for the Gentiles who are in darkness, right? Something is to be revealed, light is to be shined, that they may see clearly. But that same light is a light of honor shined onto Israel. And so, as I was thinking about this, I I thought this might help us to to think about it. Larry, we turn the house lights down a little bit? Okay, so imagine Jesus is a light, right? And we have two groups of people. We've got all the nations, all the Gentiles, those who don't know Jesus, all right? And then we have one very small group of people, Israel, who's waiting for the Messiah, right? All of you all don't know about a Messiah, don't care about a Messiah, never heard of a Messiah, you're in darkness, you are the Gentiles, right? But this family here, sorry, (laughs) sorry, thick pins, they're Israel, right? Now, really interestingly, You can see this light in the darkness, right? But you can also see something better as I shine the light over there. So it's a light or a beacon for you to come find God, the Gentiles, right? All these Gentiles can come to this light. They see it. It's showing who God is. Jesus is this light. But he's also shining. Sorry, I'll stop in a moment. He's also shining onto Israel to make it clear that they're not fools, It's a light of honor to them. It clarifies for everyone to see. They're not fools for waiting for the Messiah, for hoping in the Messiah. It's a light of glory for them in that way. This is what Simeon was waiting for. This type of consolation that it would be finally and fully shown that they're not fools, that God is true, he keeps his promises, he did what he said he was going to do, and Israel is not stupid for believing it. That's what he's hoping for. And this is what Simeon says, that light will be a beacon for all of those who are blind, but it will also clarify and show that Israel is not foolish for waiting for the Messiah. It's to their praise, it's to their honor, it's to their good reputation. 
It seems to be that's how that word is being used, how that phrase is being used. So can you imagine how Mary and Joseph must have felt? So this rando old guy, he grabs your new baby and starts saying all this stuff about how he is salvation for all types of people. Like, that's kind of weird, right? Like, I'm sure they're like, hey, what's, this is all happening pretty fast. Yes, you can hold my baby. Don't make it weird. But we don't have to imagine how they felt, right? Luke, he tells us, he clears it up for us about how they felt. He says they were amazed or in wonder at all of this. Look in verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." Simeon goes from blessing God for this new baby who brings salvation to blessing Mary and Joseph. Then he speaks about the child directly to Mary. Simeon's tone changes as he speaks to Mary, probably to a whisper. The message he gives goes from being this public message that he's saying to everyone who can hear to a more private message. And it's a message about Israel and and Israel's future. Simply put, he's saying that those who are on top of the social ladder of Israel will fall to the bottom, and those who are on the bottom will be lifted up. And if you study the teachings of Jesus, you know this is pretty central to what he's teaching. This is a central principle to his teaching. He says things like this, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, or if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be slave of all. Or, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Simeon is saying that Jesus is going to flip things upside down. He will turn Israel on its head. He will evoke opposition from Israel. And the hearts of Israel will be cut open to show what's inside. Even Mary Jesus will put the thoughts and motivations of others on display. What is hidden will be made known. What are the secret thoughts will be made public. Jesus says over in Matthew uh, 10, 34 to 39, he says this, and I think this verse gives some real clarity to the type of thing that's being said here. He says, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, Jesus really said stuff like that. And this is exactly what Simeon is pointing to. Is that this, he will have this type of effect on Israel. On the world. Jesus divides the world into two camps. Those who love him and those who don't. Those who follow him and those who don't. Those who find life 
and those who lose it. And this message, this type of message that Jesus will proclaim over and over again, it will be very dangerous for him and for those who follow him. Look with me in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of, back over in Luke chapter 2, sorry. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineal, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then, as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Luke, he shifts his attention from Simeon now to Anna. Anna's an older woman, uh, 84 years old, and she's been a widow for about 60 years. And she spends her days and nights at the temple. Her life is consumed with prayer and fasting and worship. And Luke tells us that she's a prophetess Much like those mentioned in the Old Testament, Miriam, Deborah, and others, she too speaks for God to the people. Anna, her name, means favored by God. But can you imagine as a widow with no husband, no children, a widow for 60 years, that that name is quite ironic these days? That when her neighbors say her name, they they say it, favored by God. On the face of things, she's anything but favored by God. But still, day after day, she comes to the temple to meet with God. Her neighbors must think she is a fool to worship a God so diligently when he has shown her what seems to be so little favor. They must think she is a fool. But today, Anna has come to the temple like she has every other day for the last six decades. But today, things are going to be different for Anna. Her arrival coincides with that of Simeon, Jesus, and Mary, and Joseph. And evidently, she heard what Simeon was saying about this child that's there in the temple with them. And just as Simeon had something to say about this child in the temple, now Anna has something to say. And she speaks to God in thankfulness first. She she gives thanks to God. Think about this. Day after day, she had gone to meet with God. And today, God has come to meet with her in person, in a person. God has truly shown her favor on this day. She is no fool. Luke goes on to tell us that she then shares that thankfulness with a select group of people. He calls them those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So uh, Luke likes fancy words, as you can tell throughout this passage. He's kind of using these really dynamic, kind of rich, uh, theological type words. He hung out with Paul a lot. Evidently, that kind of rubbed off on him. And when he talks, he likes to use really big words. Uh, My hope is that I can explain some of them as we go along. And so this word redemption, it's pretty important in the Bible, and it has the sense of payment or buying. 
Uh, just, re- just recently, I was given a gift card. All the uh, staff at Northwake were given gift cards uh, by a really generous uh, member at Northwake. So if you're looking for, you know, how do we bless the staff at Northwake? Man, Starbucks gift cards are always great. Anyway, so uh, we were given these gift cards. And so I went by Starbucks and I redeemed that gift card for a hot chai latte. So redemption happened at Starbucks in that moment. I redeemed that card for some coffee. That's kind of the way that we use this word. It has the idea of buying. But the redemption of Jerusalem uh, that some were waiting on at that time, it's, it's not about coffee or gift cards. No, no, no. They were waiting for God to buy them out of slavery to sin and all of its consequences. They were waiting for a full and final deliverance that would take them out of danger and into safety that only God can give. They were waiting for a redeemer who would do that. And Anna has seen him face to face. So like all the prophets before her, the prophetesses before her, she goes to tell anyone who will listen to her. It seems like there were some who were waiting and some who had gotten tired of waiting. So she goes and finds those who are still waiting for the redemption of Israel. And she tells them of the good news that she has encountered today at the temple. Look with me at verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Luke tells us that Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they returned home to the area of Galilee and to the town of Nazareth, a nowhere town. Someone will later say in the book of John, does anything good come from Nazareth? This is a bad town. It's a middle of nowhere town in the middle of nowhere county. And after all of this, Jesus and his family go back to being nobodies like they were before Bethlehem nobodies like they were before this miraculous birth nobodies like they were before the journey to jerusalem mary and joseph are nobodies from nowhere that you would never know about nothing to look at and you might have noticed who was missing in luke's story so far so if you think back in the story of luke the types of people he's introduced us to there's no magi there's no kings Remember, there was no priest to meet Jesus at the temple. Where's the high priest at the temple? The high high priest is supposed to meet them at the entrance of the temple and, and receive the child, right, and receive the sacrifices. That didn't happen. Luke presents to us just a bunch of nobodies, shepherds and old people and a poor family from nowhere. And then some people who are continually waiting on God to fulfill his promises. Luke is presenting to us a bunch of nobodies with no names. They're not important. They're insignificant. And you may feel yourself these days feeling like a nobody. If you pay attention, Christmas is a big letdown, right? You get on the other side of Christmas and you're like, that just didn't satisfy me. It leaves you with this empty feeling that you just can't fill up. It makes you feel less than. It makes you compare your toys to everyone else's. And somehow everybody else gets better toys. 
and you feel like a nobody. You might be feeling like a nobody these days. And if so, the book of Luke is a welcome mat for you. Because Jesus takes the insignificant of the world and gives them a place in his house. That's what he does. He's taking all these insignificant people and he's making a place for them in his house and in his kingdom. And on the other hand, you may be feeling like a real somebody these days. You just got a bonus, a new car, job's going great, marriage is killing it, kids are like trillionaires and like, I don't know, whatever, whatever the thing people want their kids to be, right? You, you may really feel like it's, it's going well for you. You may feel really significant. And likewise, Jesus welcomes you to come on in and be a nobody with everyone else in his house. That's the invitation. Because remember, Jesus is going to flip the world over. He's going to flip it upside down, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so we all come into the house of Jesus as nobodies. He gives us significance. There's only one name that offers salvation. And if you hear anything today, that's what you have to remember. There's only one name that offers salvation, and that's the name Jesus. Because that's what his name means. Pretty on brand, right? His name is what he does. He saves and by the name of Jesus, we can have our hearts carved out to make us love God. He can do that by the Spirit. And by the name of Jesus, we can have true atonement offered for our sins, because that's what he came to do. And by the name of Jesus, we can have our, the deep con consolation that we desire, the most deep desire, that consolation that nothing else can give you, that comfort that you want most. He offers that. And by the name of Jesus, we can be redeemed and put safely where we belong. That's what he offers. This is the salvation that Jesus offers and truly secures for all who trust him. I think that Luke may have been talking to Paul. If you look over in Romans chapter 10, verses 11 to 13, you'll see this. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let me ask you today, how's it all working out for you? Dr. Phil says, how's that working out for you? And I think it's a good question. Are you happy? Are you comforted? Are you free? Is your heart what you want it to be? Because that's what Jesus offers. And he offers it to every single person in this room today. And he invites you. And he says, hey, come be with me. He says, hey, come into my house. And he takes you at the very depth of your soul where you're worried that you're a nobody and that you're insignificant and that your life is just a vapor because it really is. He takes you in your smallness and says, hey, come to me. I am salvation. 
I will make you whole and I will make you free and I will make you happy. I will make you mine. I'll give you a place in my house where we can be together. That's what he offers you today. That's what salvation means. So let me ask you, what in the world would keep you from being open to that type of offer today? And because I know that none of this can be done without the help of the Holy Spirit, that's what I want to pray for us, is that all of these beautiful things that Jesus has been told to us to be, the salvation of all types of people everywhere, because he is that, but we need God's help to understand that, I want to pray that he would help us to understand that today. Would you be willing to pray that with me today? Yay or nay? I mean, some of us may not be willing to pray that. But I want to encourage you, if you're resistant to praying that, give me a little bit. Just pray with me. Father, we need your help to believe. Uh, Our hearts are so hardened and wrapped up in things that just don't love you. And we need you to cut that away that we can have sensitivity to you. But we know that we need your help in doing that. And so we ask you to do that to us today. So that all these true things, redemption, being put where I belong, and consolation, the deep comfort of of knowing that what you say is true and you keep your promises, hope, all the waiting, Lord, that has to be done as, as we follow you. Give us grace to do that. Give us grace to believe and give us grace to call on you today as Lord for the thousandth time this week or for the first time ever. We need you. We are desperate, Lord. Lord Jesus, we confess today that you are Lord and you are Savior and there is no other. We pray it in your name. Amen.